This is not the media. This is hell. We're all going to die. This is hell. Live from our studio above a pool table in a bar. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's Hell, Alex Jerry. And Alex has this week's question from Hell, which you can reply to at Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Alex, what's this week's question from Hell, and how are some of our listeners responding? Uh, this week's question from Hell, which I may be regretting, is uh, why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? And uh, Jason F. says, nine out of ten dentists recommended it. Chris F. says, because I'm socially foolish and fiscally stupid. <laughs> Corey G said, Trump said he'll let me keep vaping if it turned on Bernie, uh, if I turned on Bernie. Uh, Adam A said to honor our nation's proud native heritage. And Sebastian M said, because mayo is too spicy and then we needed a green imperialist army. Oh, oh, man. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. Why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? Why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? At Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio, the person with the best answer wins a book we discussed earlier today on this morning's live This Is Hell at ThisIsHell.com. Jody Dean's new book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging. On This Is Hell tonight, we are living in the Anthropocene, which our guest defines as the period of recent planetary time in which human activities began to influence all the planet's biological, geologic, and chemical systems. And guess what? You can visit the Anthropocene anytime you want, or at least you could before Hurricane Dorian wiped out major parts of the Bahamas. But don't worry, the government has quickly responded and made all of Nassau's high-end hotels open for business, while the poor living in other parts of the archipelago continue to suffer. So what impact does the influence of human activity have on tourism, and what effect will the struggle against global change have on tourism, which is a major contributor to global warming? We'll find out what happens to tourism when we enter a new era where we experience planetary, biological, geological, and chemical changes when we speak with sociocultural anthropologist and sustainability scholar Amelia Moore, author of Destination Anthropocene, Science, and Tourism in the Bahamas. Every time I see the words Destination Anthropocene, I want to say it like this. Destination Anthropocene! I don't know why. Earlier today, when we were talking to Jody Dean, author of Comrade, which is the prize for this week's winner of the question from hell, I asked Jody if I was acting like a comrade without even knowing it by accident. Have I been putting the best interest of everyone over what might be my best selfish self-interest? What's best for some group over what's best for little old me? I thought it might be possible due to my deeply held belief that the airwaves are owned by the public, and therefore, whatever you do on air should be in the public service, what's in the public's best interest, which at times has led us to cover topics that I wasn't all that excited to read or talk about. But we covered it because we believed it is a topic that is in the service of the public. We can guess what we, I'm sorry, we can't guess what you want. If we could, We'd be billionaires, but we can make an educated guess at what is in the public's best interest. We can take a far better shot at what information is in the public service. And that information is what you do not hear in the establishment media because it contradicts the corporate narrative commercial and public broadcasters embrace and espouse as the truth and the news. That is the public service that we do in the public interest. We give you the news that scares the news because it challenges the elite powers with whom they aspire to mingle and network. And they are not the type that bites the hand that feeds them. 
The media are more the type that licks and kisses the hand that feeds them, no matter what evil it is that the wealthy are doing with that other unseen hand. So I asked Jody, to what extent is acting in the public service and doing something you may not otherwise do, but you do it in the public's interest, is that being a comrade? Jody's answer was brilliant. She said that when I interview her, I'm interviewing her as a comrade, as someone who is working together collectively toward a common goal. And that's true, as the common goal I have with all our guests is to get their unique perspective to our audience. Jody also said, and you should go back and hear her entire response, part of what she said was, while I may see what I am doing as in the public interest myself, what I see what I'm doing is in the public interest, Jody believes I'm actually doing a service for the left from a left point of view, that I might maybe mistaking a service for the left as a public service for everyone. And she's right, but, but there's a problem. I am working in the public interest, doing a public service. If I'm, that's what I'm doing, then I am doing something that is leftist. The left, at least the left I want to believe in, wants to help everyone. It wants to end inequality. It wants to abolish racism and misogyny to the dustbin of history. The left is in the public interest. The right, on the other hand, is in private interest. They believe that what is best for every one of them individually is what's best for everyone. If we all take care of ourselves by ourselves, alone without any interference or help or support from anyone else, the right believes we'll all be fine. The right even erases any contribution anyone else has ever made to their success, ignoring the public education they or any of their co-workers or employees received, the public ro roads all of them took to school and work, the public services that assist everybody in emergencies, and all of the training the road workers, teachers, and first responders received, and all of the other people who have contributed to their success. Everyone and everything that is ever done for the right is ungratefully and selfishly ignored, erased from their self-made myth, which they insist proves each one of us can all act individually as if all of humanity, its accomplishments, and history do not exist. More so, it erases their impact on the world around them. They are self-made, so anyone suffering due to their profits are, are not an issue. That's their problem. The poor they exploited for making bad choices, that's not the problem for those on the right. By working in service to the public and attempting to bring you content in the public interest, I've inadvertently done a service for the left because the public service, public interest, is a very leftist concept. Private interest, that's the right with their utopian horizon of fascism, where nobody cares about anyone but themselves. So Jody was correct. We do work in the public interest here on This Is Hell, which by accident has made us made us comrades. And you can win Jody Dean's new book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging, if we decide you have the best answer to this week's question from hell, which is, why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? Why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following our interview with Amelia Moore on her book, Destination Anthropocene, to hear more responses. Then after Jeff Dorchin delivers his moment of truth, and this week Jeff experiences a moment of truth and reconciliation, following Jeff, we'll read the rest of the answers and announce this week's winner. As soon as this evening's show ends... We're heading directly downstairs from our new studio 
to a bar. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, where we hold our weekly meet and greet with y'all, which is really more of a think and drink. Drop by, hang out, have a drink, chat me up. We'll give you This Is Hell's advertising stickers and show-related books just for hanging out. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. Tourism has a huge impact on climate change. Problem is, there's a new tourism to not only visit before the current state of our world disappears due to the changing climate, but also for scientists to go study what the rest of us will be experiencing really soon if we're not experiencing it already. And even sooner if all this tourism continues. Here to help us understand tourism in our new biological, geological, and chemical era of world history, socio-cultural anthropologist and sustainability scholar Amelia Moore is author of Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas. Welcome to This Is Hell, Amelia. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well, and thanks for being on our show. Amelia is Assistant Professor of Sustainable Coastal Tourism and Recreation in the Department of Marine Affairs at the University of Rhode Island. Um, get to your first question here. So you write the islands of the Bahamas are icons of tropical paradise, internationally known for their white and pink sand beaches, hedonistic resorts, resorts, and aquamarine seas. In 2016, the Bahamas was the ninth most tourism-dependent country in the world per capita, receiving over 6 million visitors, nearly 16 times more people than its national population. Therefore, the realities of tourism are essential for any understanding of the function of Anthropocene logics in the archipelago. And you add the Anthropocene was coined within the Earth sciences. It labels the period of recent planetary time in which human activities began to influence all of the planet's biological geological and chemical systems. We've been discussing uh, the Anthropocene dating back to, uh, I think, probably before 2014 when we talked to Elizabeth Colbert about her Pulitzer Prize winning book, Sixth Extinction and Unnatural History. Is the Anthropocene already happening on islands around the world? And can we watch the Anthropocene in action, isolated on small islands? I think... um Absolutely. Um, I, have, I have to preface everything by saying, you know, I am not um, a geologist and uh, the geological terminology, I don't really have a strong stake in whether or not the Anthropocene is quote unquote scientifically real. But if uh, as a cultural anthropologist, if ideas about anthropogenic global change are influencing the way people and populations think and act in the world, then I'm happy to call you know, what they're responding to the Anthropocene, whether or not they actually use that term or not. I just am anticipating, you know, anybody trying to, to quibble with me over the geological concept. I don't, I'm not worried about that. But are islands experiencing anthropogenic change now at this moment? Absolutely. And they have been for some time. Um, and there's already been, um, islands are already becoming what we might think of as uh, kind of slowly uninhabitable. Um, and this is a trend that, I, that is frighteningly increasing, I think, around the world and many others think too. 
You state this island imaginary is in transition, and you explained that in the Bahamas, science and tourism are entangling together as they create new businesses, brands, and destinations for a changing planet. But their solution to the problem of anthropogenesis is more exposure for those parts of the world that are already the most susceptible to ecological change and economic dependency. So how sustainable is tourism in the face of climate change? Are the places tourists visits, or at least the reasons people visit, are they going to disappear? The short answer is yes. Um, in, in, in many cases, uh, it's no longer viable to think about the travel, international travel, using um, carbon-intensive transportation systems. Um, no matter where you're going or why you're going, it's no longer viable to think of that as sustainable, just from the get-go. So even if you're going to um, an ecotourist preserve, even if you're going to a hotel that uh, has all based on renewable energy, even if you're um, going to do really wonderful, good volunteer work, um, sometimes I I think we have to start thinking and questioning whether or not it's really worth the carbon footprint. Um, And not just thinking about it in terms of our own individual choices, but thinking about you know, if we want to go visit a place like the Bahamas, um, one of certain parts of that country, it's an archipelago of, of over 700 islands, 30 of which are inhabited, certain parts of that country are incredibly low-lying. Um, even if we think we're staying in a sustainable place um, that brands itself and markets itself as being a sustainable destination, are we, you know, we're being completely hypocritical by taking a jumbo jet there um, or getting there by, you know, cruise ship. So probably most people going to stay in sustainable resorts are not taking cruise ships, but we have to start questioning the very mode of transportation that we're using to get there because the the tourism industry itself, I think some of the latest um, numbers are, is kind of one of the, uh, one of the largest industries when it comes to contributing to emissions. Uh, And so I think it's already untenable. So is the green tourism, is sustainable tourism then, is that impossibility? Because that's certainly something I see continually mentioned in the travel section of the New York Times, that this is the new fad. So is this just a con? Is it a scam? I think there's a lot of great intention. I don't think people are intentionally trying to scam anyone. I think there's a lot of really well-meaning, really intelligent work going into trying to improve the travel industry. But unless you think about the traveler from, you know, the moment they begin their journey to the destination and the moment they leave the destination when to when they get home. And, you know, all of those processes and structures that support that travel, unless that kind of door-to-door thinking is part of the travel plan and is part of the sustainable program, then, then I don't think the work, the travel that people are touting as sustainable really matters unfortunately i mean and that that's true on a global scale but some you know there it's it's still an improvement to have a resort that uses less energy and produces less waste for the local the local environment and for the you know local systems but if we're really facing the effects of anthropogenic change on a global scale today, and that is already impacting that locality, then I think it is um, 
I don't know, scam is probably too strong of a word because the people involved in it, trying to improve destinations um, are very sincerely working very hard to do that. But again, if, you're, if they're not thinking about, you know, moving the traveler from, you know, their, their point of departure all the way to when they get home again and how, how can that become more sustainable? How can travel become more sustainable? Um, then they're really missing a major, major component of the whole story. So how would an economy like the Bahamas that is so dependent upon tourism, how would it adapt to a post-tourism world? How would it adapt to global warming, climate change, global change? How would it adapt to that when they are so dependent on that as their, as their number one economic development model? Yeah, so tourism is probably in just under 50% of the economy. Um, government is a huge employer there. Um, the fishing industry is small. Offshore finance is substantial. But tourism is by far the biggest source of foreign exchange. Um, and right now, there nobody has an answer to that question. Um, nobody in the Bahamas, at any rate, has one that people believe is actually viable. Um, there isn't a lot of... Uh, viable land for major industry um, of other kinds that wouldn't be just as um, as harmful in other ways. Um, they don't want large extractive um, economies. Um, in terms of their banking sector, um, basically being an offshore tax haven is, is an economic option, but it's one that they, it gets a lot of scrutiny. Um, it's not necessarily considered to be the most it doesn't make you friends uh, with other governments, <laughs> and and the the company is the company the country is incredibly dependent on maintaining good relationships with the United States, with Canada, with Europe, with places where most of its um, tourists come from. So so it's you know they're not trying to go out and do anything grossly illegal to you know more than they already have in order to you know, focus purely on offshore finance. So, and of course, the travel industry is a big part of that with um, a foreign investment uh, offshore in tourism development. But all that said, you know, there really isn't another viable source of, in of, a, of an income that will leave the country in um, as, as stable a financial state, even though that stability has been eroding um, as the tourism industry. So they're really, a country like the Bahamas is really caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, even now, of course, we know um, that this month the Bahamas was hit by Hurricane Dorian, um, and that hit two of the most populous islands, not not the most populous island, but the second and third most populous islands, with massive, massive effects that will, you know, be affecting the country for years to come. And some of the first things that were coming out of the country post storm is that, that I was seeing on social media were people calling for the tourists to come back because of course it's a major economic hit for a hurricane like that to happen and all of the publicity about the Bahamas is now about it being devastated by a category five hurricane and so people are not making the plan the travel plans that they would have otherwise been making because they think the whole country is decimated when in fact as Bahamians are will, will hasten to point out the, the, most of the country is wide open for visitors. It was only two islands that were hit. And as destructive and horrible as it looks, like, please come and, you know, save our economy by traveling. And this 
that narrative and, you know, these images of people, you know, circling the two affected islands and then circling the whole rest of the country and pointing to the affected islands and saying, this is where the hurricane hit. All of this is open for business. Please come. That narrative really hits me right in the gut because it's a country that's just been hit by an incredibly intense hurricane. The intensity of storms we know is increasing as the planet warms. This storm was unusually intense. People were not prepared for it. And the only choice that they have, that they feel that they have to maintain a viable economy in the wake of such devastation is more tourism, is more cruise arrivals, is more jet plane arrivals, is more large hotel um, arrival numbers. Uh, and then that I find, you know, incredibly painfully paradoxical. And yet that's the reality that a country like that faces. You know, it's, it's really in an impossible situation. Hurricane Dorian made landfall on the Abaco Islands on September 1st. On September 14th, the Guardian's David Smith reported from Marsh Harbor on the Abaco Islands in the Bahamas. Smith writes, holidaymakers queuing at immigration at the Bahamas NASA airport are still serenaded by three pink-shirted men playing jovial music. <laughs> They're still sunbathing on the beaches and still swimming in the sea. Again, this is just two weeks after landfall. It's as if nothing has changed in the Bahamas, yet 40 minutes away by plane. On the Abaco Islands, heaven turns to hell. The mud, a shantytown that was home to the Bahamas' biggest Haitian immigrant community, has been obliterated by Hurricane Dorian as if by a massive bomb. Have uh, To what extent, or as it stands right now, is the Bahamas, are the Bahamas sustainable for tourism, but not Bahamians? I mean, that's the fear. I think that uh, a lot of us who are watching these processes unfold um, have that it's not, and this is the reality of climate change for a lot of islands and coastal areas. It's not only that a lot of places will uh, be exposed to sea level rise and there, the land will be gone. That will happen in some low lying places, but what is going to be more common and more prevalent and what we're already seeing is places becoming too expensive and costly and dangerous for everyday people to live because they can't rebuild their homes every two years. They can't replace their roof every two years. They, you know, can't replace their boats and their cars. They can't get back to work. They're losing their kind of everyday infrastructure that regular folks have. But there are larger industries, larger multinational companies, large larger people with massive amounts of wealth who can sustain that as, as kind of like the cost of doing business. So they can keep hotels open. They can do those repairs. They can shift things around so that their businesses can continue to operate with business as usual. They can become more expensive and the travel will become more expensive. It already is quite expensive to vacation in the Bahamas, as many of your listeners probably know. Um, that will continue to become more expensive. But for those people who can afford it, it will still be a valuable place that they can vacation in that will, you know, continue to make certain people money. And those people who, you know, whose only wealth was their land, for example, will no longer be able to live in it because they no longer have the capital to afford it. And that's, I think, in the, in the mid-range timeline, you know, the next 20 years, something that I'm and others are particularly uh, afraid of. 
You said the Bahamas were unprepared for Hurricane Dorian. How much does tourism lead to unpreparedness in the face of climate change? I mean, that's a really good question because there are some um, members of the tourism industry and some businesses that do quite a bit. Um, you know, I don't want to paint all of the tourism industry with an evil brush, even though I think we're all kind of culpable, you know, those of us who travel there included. Um, the, the people who, you know, they're the, if they're the organizations and institutions with money, then they're the ones that are actually trying to prepare their employees um, who are actually some of the first responders um, when a catastrophe happens. So some of the big resorts and hotels have actually done quite a lot of um, of work to uh, provide food and other kinds of needed resources in the wake of the storm and to worry about their employees and to get the medical care and, and things like that. So I think that, that definitely happens. The tourism industry does, act, does actively work to... Um, in the recovery process and the, and the prepare, preparedness process. But unfortunately, um, because of this focus on foreign development, um, foreign uh, investor money in the development of the, of the industry, that, that is less kind of a vacuum, I think, in the, in the government's capacity or even interest in developing um, real preparedness plans that we've seen that and there's a there's a brilliant um, Bahamian public intellectual her name is Nicolette Bethel and and she has described in a recent blog post at, at nicolettebethel.com about kind of changing levels of preparedness that she's seen over her lifetime in the Bahamas you know when she was younger and there was less social media and there was you know we had People lived uh, with, you know, the newspaper and the radio every hurricane season. People were told what to do. They were told where to go. They were told to prepare. Um, and now it seems as though with everybody's access to all kinds of information, they're less prepared. And the government is playing less and less of a role in being responsible for the preparedness of its population. Um, and there are probably lots of reasons for that. They don't have anything to do with the tourism industry. Um, but it's, it's definitely a frightening occurrence. How good of a model for economic development is tourism? And maybe it might be a good model for economic development when it comes to investors, but to what degree is it a good model for economic development for the working people of the Bahamas, for the Bahamians who live there? So there's probably a lot of ways that um, tourism can operate. There's no one model of, of tourism. The, the model that the, that the Bahamian government has pursued um, since the you know, mid-20th century is one in which foreign investor dollars come in and kind of create an artificial paradise for foreign visitors. And Bahamians um, are supposed to do the, you know, the labor um, and kind of the behind-the-scenes work in that, uh, in that field. And so they do a lot of the maintenance, the construction, they do a lot of the kind of basic service jobs, wait staff, cleaning, and those kinds of things. And there's been a real feeling, um, except for, you know, with a few exceptions, but a real feeling in the, um, the degree to which a Bahamian can climb in the um, kind of upper management of the industry or, you know, getting to the ownership um, level just because it takes such um, 
high levels of capital to get there. And, and also because a lot of these foreign entities come in with their own management structures and their own internal hiring processes for, for you know, that bring in people from other parts of their companies from the U.S. or from kind of the the metropolitan centers that they come from. Um, and so, you know, Bahamians can only work so long um, and make it so far. Um, and so most of what they have are fairly decent um, what they call in the Bahamas middle-class jobs, um, where they do the service work. Some of them are, you know, protected by fairly strong unions. Um, but it's basically just to maintain this service class. Um, and that's kind of the job, good hotel jobs are historically what Bahamians have been aspiring to. Again, there's lots of exceptions to this, but that's kind of the, the kind of general narrative. Um, and nowadays, I think... The, the problem with tourism in the Bahamas is that, you know, an, an investor really wants to make a return on their investment in a certain amount of time. And then after that, they either fail, a lot of times they do fail, but if they do make that return on the investment, after that, it doesn't really matter what happens. You know, those properties might be sold, they may be sold many times over, um, and the employees are kind of at the whim of all of this failure or, you know, a bust resort. There are many bust resorts and hotel developments all over that country. Um, or they have to kind of change their plans, change their, you know, the agreements that they had every time a new owner might come in. Um, and again, they're kind of held at this mid-level where they're, you know, not actually amassing uh, the kind of wealth that you need in order to build capital. And so a lot of people are basically living paycheck to paycheck. Um, and that, I think, is a, not a really strong development strategy when you see that it isn't actually building long-term wealth in your population. You write the way tourism officials position the islands has evolved over time to make the Bahamas more easily consumable for the outside world of potential investors and visitors. This consumption has been facilitated through the promotion of the islands as a timeless tropical sanctuary from the cares of daily life in the industrialized world. This is what I think of as the Isles of June, discursive framing of island place, a phrase attributed to Christopher Columbus that was used to describe the region as a tourist destination during the 1940s when the islands were still governed as a segregated British colony. Within this frame, the romance of colonialism is maintained through beach resorts for foreign guests served by native hosts in a carefully orchestrated illusion of perpetual tranquility. Is tourism then a reproduction of colonialism? When tourists travel, are they not only mimicking, but actually contributing to, say, some sort of neo-colonialism? The short answer is yes. <laughs> There's um, a wonderful, um, another Bahamian public intellectual, her name is Erin Green, and she's created the um, hashtag, can you see the plantation through the palm trees? Um, and I think that is really, you know, apt, uh, way to think about, you know, a lot of the region, not just the Bahamas, but it's particularly apt in the Bahamas. Um, many, many cultural critics and many um, historians will say um, that this, the style of um, foreign investment uh, in the tourism industry is basically just, you know, exchanging the, you know, colonial plantation system with, um, with the dependency on, on, foreign investment money um, and that it, it 
essentially works to keep the population subservient. Um, now, there are a lot of people who, you know, really don't like that characterization, but I think there's a unfortunate amount of evidence that, um, I mean, a co- more complicated than that it can be, but there's an unfortunate amount of evidence that, um, that, that points to the neo-colonial realities of, of resort tourism as um, being, you know, fairly close structurally to a plantation economy. You write that many scholars look to assign responsibility for the problems of tourism, accurately chart its evolution, and propose solutions. This represents a sea change in the environmental movement, transforming the environment into an epoch. But this transformation should not be taken at face value. The Anthropocene can also be understood as evidence of a philosophical shift in the way many people come to know their world themselves and their relationship to other things. How inevitable is that? Is it that climate change will force us to have a social or a cultural transformation when it comes to our relationship with all living things? And does that new relationship mean less tourism? Well, I don't think anything is inevitable. Um, right now you see such a polarization, particularly in the U.S., um, but also globally, um, between those of us in which that shift is definitely already happening. You know, I, I for one, very much feel uh, that the relationships that that hold my life together and the life of people that I care about and love in the U.S. and abroad, and especially in the Bahamas, is in, is challenged. That life, that capacity for survival and sustainability, is is deeply challenged. Um, and that there's a feeling of, you know, intense anxiety and precarity that comes with that. And that's the daily reality for, for so many people around the world, um, and in particularly in island states. Um, and yet there are, you know, equally large, perhaps, numbers of people for whom that seems like fear-mongering and exaggeration and the, re- the realities of these changes um, they're kind of refusing to accept them or to see them, even if they're experiencing them. You know, they want to attribute them to other things or um, think that they're going to change. It's only temporary. Um, and that polarization is, uh, I think, incredibly unproductive um, and incredibly frightening um, because it means that it's going to take longer to address the issues that, that need to be addressed. And so I don't know if it's, I, I worry that it isn't inevitable. As inevitable as it feels to me and as that, you know, as it feels to people in the Bahamas who have just experienced, you know, another uh, climate catastrophe and who are, you know, might even get another hurricane this summer, this this hurricane season, you know, before it cools down there, um, which, you know, God forbid, um, for them, you know, it might it might feel inevitable. But um, but unless until until uh, it's inevitable for everyone, I, I really worry that that not enough is going to be done. It's important that we stress, as you point out, that uh, the Anthropocene is more than just climate change. Are we in, in just as much climate change denial as we are Anthropocene denial or as so many now accept that climate change will have a negative impact on the world, are we really in more de- more denial about this being the Anthropocene and therefore unwilling to reconsider our relationship with the rest of the living world? Well, I mean, so before this hurricane, um, 
you know, I was kind of very careful to to remind people that the Anthropocene is about more than just um, carbon emissions, global warming, and what we call climate change, even though the effects of those are very far reaching. It's also about uh, overconsumption of resources. It's also about waste. It's also about, um, you know, changing uh, living conditions for all kinds of organisms and creatures that have, you know, to do with expanding populations, not just um, uh, atmospheric conditions and, and, and those kinds of climactic changes. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's hard at this moment, um, it's hard for me to want to downplay at all, you know, the, the centrality of climate change to this kind of Anthropocenic issue. So if these Anthropocenic issues. So if, you know, Right now, in this moment, if people want to worry about climate change and um, the precarity of life in uh, Hurricane Alley uh, at the moment, I'm happy to let them worry about that. Um, you know, there is, a, I think, a large amount of, I don't know if it's if it's outright denial that, that many people have or if it's just a lack of... Um, most Americans, for example, are not feeling what's happening in coastal areas if they don't live there. So if they're not in Houston, they're not in uh, New Orleans, they're not in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, um, they might not be, they might have room to think that these issues are not that serious. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know what to tell those to tell those people, except for to look to places like the Bahamas, to look to think about all of the in, very intense hurricanes that we've had in the last few years and the impacts that they've had in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. across the whole Atlantic region. Maybe you know, worrying about the Anthropocene won't get them, but worrying about the effects of increasingly intensifying hurricanes. You know, all of these Category 5s and Category 4s that we've had over the last three years and longer, you know, increasing in, in frequency, um, you know, maybe that is something that is perhaps at this moment undeniable. In rethinking our relationship with all other living things, how much of an obstacle is uh, any desire that we have as humans, as a society, as a culture, to not give up the idea that we are dominant over nature, that we control nature? How much is are we in denial because we do not want to give up that relationship with nature? Well, you know, I don't think that that is like a human condition. I think that, that 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 attitude or that worldview has very long and interesting history. You know, one of which I'm not an expert of, but it is you know it's born out of particular contingent moments in time. That you know, there's a reason for it. Um, so that to me, that means there's just as much of a possibility that people can begin, and people already are obviously making other kinds of connections and relationships to the living world in ways that can decenter uh, kind of human supremacy, if you want, or the idea of that kind of supremacy. Um, and I, you know, I'm hoping that those other ways of living and other ways of seeing the world and other ways of relating become uh, more viable, more socially viable, more popular. Um, it's hard sometimes to see the way forward um, because we don't have a lot of um, strong 
examples or, you know, leads to follow. Um, and we have people who are, you know, actively resistant to that kind of thinking. But, uh, uh, you know, I, you have to have some optimism. You have to keep having these conversations. You have to keep reading. Um, you have to open up, the, keep open the possibility of imagining alternatives. Um, because if you stop, if you don't have the capacity to imagine it, you won't think of it. It won't, because it won't happen. You write that the Anthropocene concept has become increasingly significant for natural scientists, social scientists, and humanists as a powerful creative idea. Is the Anthropocene concept then potentially revolutionary? Yes and no. So for some people, it is uh, woefully inadequate. So for some scholars, um, the, even the term anthropos, you know, is too human centric. Um, they don't think it has the capacity to lead us beyond the human um, in a way that they, you know, think we need to do. Um, there are some that say, you know, it's not, it's not actually labeling the real culprits because the culprits, the people responsible for, you know, our contemporary world are not just everybody everywhere all the time. This is what I tell my students, you know, don't, don't, talk about human nature as though it was some kind of ubiquitous thing. It's not everywhere, not everyone everywhere all the time is always responsible for everything. Um, there are, there's a particular history to the Anthropocene. It is colonial. It is built out of um, capitalism and extractive industries. It is, um, it has its origins. It has, there are some people who are more responsible for it and who benefit from it far more than others. Um, so, you know, be more specific. Some people just find the Anthropocene as, you know, too vague of a term. They want, so they say capitalocene, uh, like Jason Moore, or they say plantationocene. Um, they think those are more descriptive terms. So what does it say about our global climate governance regime when it does not challenge our travel markets? Because you write that the irony is that continued mass tourism trumps every conservation-oriented plan in the Bahamas, and yet conservation can be repackaged by the tourism industry to continue to bring visitors. This is an example of the paradoxical alignment between the global climate governance regime and international travel markets. So so what does it say about our global uh, climate governance regime when it does not ch challenge those travel markets? I think it's be because, you know, how are you going to restrict people's capacity to travel? You're kind of restricting their rights and freedoms. And I think that's a really dangerous place to go. It's just as people don't want to talk about population control. I certainly don't want to talk about population control. You know, I, I don't want to start wading into who has the right to reproduce or not. That's a horrible place to be. I think we think about travel as a, some of us in the world who have the privilege as, um, as a human right. Um, and so, you know, if uh, I think we've kind of, wandered away from the idea that we can offset our travel emissions by, you know, planting trees in the Amazon, um, that that is also a marketing ploy that doesn't necessarily actually do anything to address the real realities of, of our, the, the sheer impacts of our travel, you know, then what, then, you know, what do we do? Do we have to personally decide I am not traveling, you know, getting on a plane for my vacation this year? I am not I'm not getting on a plane for all of the many conferences I'm supposed to go to, you know, as an academic tourist. Um, I, I think, I think the kind of global powers that be, uh, you know, full of multilateral agreements and things like that, they don't want to start, 
interfering in people's decision-making capacity, they kind of would prefer that those choices come from, from us as consumers. You know, we stop our travel on our own rather than being dictated to. And I think there's, you know, a lot of merit to that. Um, unfortunately, um, the, the, the travel industry is clever and they will, you know, lure us to travel. <laughs> They're one step ahead of us often. You, uh, one of the things I want to ask you before I let you go, I've got two more questions for you, but anecdotally, I was recently told about somebody's trip to a tourist haven and how their cab from the airport to the resort went through areas of intense poverty. They understood that the poor they drove by were probably working at the nearby resort where they were staying, so they figured that at least they were helping locals out by spending money in their economy. How much should the fact that tourists are spending money in the local economy assuage them of any guilt for contributing to an economy and politics that creates such inequality and poverty like the one that they pass through? Well, first of all, like if they're really staying at a, you know, an all-inclusive resort that's owned and operated by a foreign entity, most of what they're spending probably doesn't stay in the local economy. It might go to wage wages and it might go to some local purchasing of of goods and services, um, but the vast majority of prob- of what they're spending is probably um, leaving the country, and you know that's a phenomenon people call uh, leakage. Um, now, if they're staying somewhere where they, you know, they've looked into that, they're aware, they know, they know that this happens, and they're trying to find a locally owned um, hotel or bed and breakfast or um, something like that, and where they feel fairly confident that a high, you know, a high level of what they're spending to be there actually stays in that local economy, that's a different thing, but that's a different kind of, of tourism. Um, and again, it doesn't necessarily assuage the issues, the climate change and global emissions issues, because they still had to travel to get to this place. Um, but, but that is at least, you know, the beginning of a more uh, socially conscious and aware kind of travel. Um, and it's very hard, actually, sometimes to learn what percentage of what of what you spend as a as a traveler stays within the country. Most places you would never be able to know that because it's their their uh, processes are not transparent um, intentionally, so so that you're not an informed consumer. I've got one last question for you. We have been speaking with socio-cultural anthropologist and sustainability scholar Amelia Moore, author of Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas. Amelia is assistant professor of sustainable coastal tourism and recreation in the Department of Marine Affairs at the University of Rhode Island. Amelia, for every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response. In July, we spoke with sociologist William I. Robinson about his book, Into the Tempest, Essays on the New Global Capitalism. William is also a member of the International Parliamentary and Civil Society Mission to Investigate the Political Transition in Iraq. William writes this about tourism. Under the new global social apartheid, tourism is the fastest growing economic activity and even the mainstay of many third world economies. This does not mean that more people are actually enjoying the fruits of leisure and international travel. It means that 20% of humanity has more and more disposable income simultaneously to the contraction of consumption by the remaining 80%. This 80% is forced to provide all sorts of ever more frivolous services to and to orient its 
productive activity toward meeting the needs and satisfying the sumptuous desires of that 20%. So as inequality grows, so does tourism. And as tourism increases, so does a society's orientation toward the production of frivolous, wasteful, and unnecessary services, or so William argues. Do you believe that the growth in tourism globally is related to inequality? Is William's argument sound? Is inequality a byproduct of tourism? That is a question from hell. Um, (laughs) I do see that in the rise of what people are calling luxury tourism. Um, You know, in in efforts to, you know, build more sustainable developments that have fewer guests and produce less waste and are built more sustainably, which sometimes means, often means more expensively, the only way to make a profit is to have the kinds of guests that can pay more for that kind of vacation. Um, And so, you know, markets are trying to shift towards what they call the high-end tourist. And I think, you know, that is exactly this, you know, that is an effect of exactly this condition of this polarization. You have fewer people with more wealth, more places are vying to capture that wealth that is held by fewer people. Uh, And so they're redesigning their industries in order to be more attractive to those fewer people um, in a a self-perpetuating cycle um, in which, you know, they might be building more sustainable buildings, um, but that high-end tourists, um, you know, those those trips are not necessarily um, providing any greater benefit to the country. Um, or to the employees, or um, and in fact, there tend to be places where people don't want to have any interaction with local populations. Um, they don't want to be bothered. You know, those are the more exclusive places where you know you can't you can't walk in off the street. If they're behind gates, um, and I you know I do see that as uh, a disturbing trend even at the same time as other people see that trend as the, you know, salvation of the tourism industry. Uh, and that's uh, a really problematic difference. Yeah, and that's one of the, one, another one of the amazing contradictions you point out in your book. We've been speaking with sociocultural anthropologist and sustainability scholar Amelia Moore, author of Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. This is a fascinating book on a topic we've never discussed here on the show before. So I really appreciate you enlightening us about tourism and what is taking place in the Anthropocene in the Bahamas. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a really dumbass business model. Stupid dummy. In a moment during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin experiences an actual moment of truth and reconciliation. This week's question from hell, why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? Why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? You can answer it right now at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And if you are the person with the best answer, you win a book that we discussed earlier today on this morning's live This Is Hell at thisishell.com. Jody Dean's new book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging. Alex, I believe you have a few more answers to this week's question from hell. Oh, yeah. I think uh, Jessica's going to win this one. It was uh, it was in her plan. <laughs> uh, Eric T. says, Dollar Dollar Bill, y'all, even from Liz Warren's, the do- Liz Warren's daughter's NGO. Uh, Scott S. says, I misheard her. I thought she said she was a Leninist to her bones. Uh, Greg L. says, the oh, boy, Greg, making me say the times warrant a change. 
How do I report this? Oh, man. Uh, Jesus. That's offensive. I'm reporting it to Facebook. Yeah, it's offensive. Uh, yeah. Uh, Victoria C. said, because rich white ladies are so full of compassion. <laughs> nope, can't say that with a straight face. <laughs> Krimsky K. says, she promised to set up a commission. Chris H. says, <laughs> I have no ethics, nada, none. Gorilla G. said, she offered me a beer with such sincerity and authenticity. And uh, anti-tanky cookies for anti-reactionary nookies. Said, I thought I'd give Warren G. Harding another chance. <laughs> You still have a chance at winning Jody Dean's book, Comrade, by having the best answer to this week's question from hell by leaving your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Alex will have the rest of your replies following Jeff. Speaking of our horrible business model where we stupidly put profits or people before profits, it would be really much better if we did it with profits before people. But, yeah. On Patreon tomorrow, I'll tell you what our first week of weekday show was like for me a behind the scenes look at what it took for me to get out of my 23 years of a lack of a routine into a regular work schedule that includes not working on weekends we'll also play a classic interview from our vast catalog of on-air conversations that are not available to anyone but our Patreon subscribers. Tomorrow's featured interview will be our December 2007 talk with award-winning journalist Jacques Leslie, whose book Deep Water, the epic struggle over dams, displaced people, and the environment had just been released. I think in hardback by a second publisher. I think that I think it was being re-released. Jacques won two National Journalism Awards for his work at the LA Times as a war correspondent in Vietnam, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in Deepwater. Jacques dissects the Independent World Commission on Dams report entitled Dams and Development. The report found that large dams are typically less profitable than predicted, and they cause irreversible environmental damage as well as poverty for millions. Yet, as Jacques explained to us, that's all groups like the World Bank were funding just the larger dams, despite their lack of profitability, their destructive nature, and the devastating impact they have on the people who live where the dams are built, and the fact that locals wanted these tiny kind of micro dams built that would have been far more effective and directly affecting and directly helping out the poor people of the area who were eventually displaced. It's a damn fine conversation. You should listen to it by going to patreon.com slash this is hell and becoming a subscriber to this is hell. If you want to support truly independent media and keep us completely independent, we take no grants, we take no advertising, we Yet again today, had somebody ask if they could buy an ad on our show. Again, I said no. I know I'm stupid. We are not beholden to anyone, which is more than you can be said for a lot of what you think is our alternative media outlets, but are not. Support This Is Hell by becoming a This Is Hell subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. And every week get exclusive content only for subscribers that includes access to live streaming content you cannot get otherwise, as well as discounts on all our merchandise, including our trucker, trucker hats, uh, T-shirts, campfire coffee mugs, reusable shopping bags, as well as our flash drive containing 25 interviews that's called the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century. So if you listen to our Sharon Lerner interview last week on uh, the Plastic Recycling Con and you want a reusable shopping bag that says This Is Hell on it, just go to thisishell.com and click on support. You can also buy all our This Is Hell stuff from me d directly during This Is Hell office hours tonight or any Wednesday evening when we hold our weekly Think and Drink with listeners. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's live This Is Hell streaming at thisishell.com. Alex Jerry. Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. What?
moment of truth, the moment of truth. Truth and reconciliation. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Sometimes after a holocaust, there are Nuremberg trials. But sometimes after a holocaust, there's a truth and reconciliation commission. Truths are told publicly, heard, and faced. Horrible truths. Cruelties are exposed, and sorrows and pain flayed and laid bare for the world to see. Injustices are diagrammed, denounced, and apologized for. Criminals against humanity are confronted with their crimes. It's a miracle that it ever happens. Considering those who escape a noose or guillotine or firing squad revenge for their inhumanity are almost always liars. The edifice of the vicious or even of the cavalierly negligent state, that is, every state, is always reinforced with lies. Lies are the rebar of the construction of nationalism. But somehow it happens. There have been any number of truth and reconciliation commissions for the perpetrators whose natural tendency is to lie, telling the truth is a better option than torture or death. And for the victims, there's a sense of having put the experience behind them. And thus the nation, or the new nation, or the newly reconciled nation, is made whole, at least psychologically. And the history of the period of Holocaust is corrected, set down, and preserved, so no one can say... It never happened. The famous commission in South Africa investigated and reported the truth about the injustices and human rights violations under apartheid and then administered amnesty and reparations. No revenge, since the point of the model is to obviate the need for revenge. In place of revenge, the antagonists reconcile. Some people consider this a shortcoming of such commissions. It's an attempt at restorative rather than retributive justice. In South Africa, the whites who got rich off the cruel forced labor and dispossession of the majority never did have to give the wealth back to the people, so putting aside revenge, reparations were left unmade. The country still suffers from the incompleteness of the project. We need to start thinking about the current generation's truth and reconciliation commissions to repair the ongoing damage rather than exact revenge. But if the reparations turn out to be incomplete, can the slack be taken up by some well-executed vengeance? I don't know the answer. We'll see. We'll see how much they stiff us on the reparations. Uh, who are they, you might well ask? Let's say it's white people. Under Truth and Reconciliation, you'd hear confessions like, yes, I did touch people's hair without permission, or yes, I did resent when black people lumped all white people together. I'm Russian. Our slaves were all white. Ranging in severity all the way up to, yes, I did fabricate evidence that sent a 14-year-old to prison for life, or yes, I did drag that man behind my truck until he was dead, or yes, I did deny USD loan, USDA loans to black farmers, causing thousands and thousands of families to lose their land, or yes, I did flood the streets of predominantly black neighborhoods with crack cocaine, or yes, I did hang Sandra Bland in jail, or yes, I did shoot Tamir Rice. Or let's say they are men. Yes, I did treat my daughter as if she could never do anything right, damaging her self-confidence. Or, yes, I did pressure my girlfriend to marry me and then cheat on her at every opportunity and gaslight her about it, all the way up to, yes, I did manipulate hundreds of girls and coerce them into sexual situations for the gratification of me, me and my friends. Or, yes, I did do many women to poverty by systematically denying them opportunities to become financially independent to... 
Yes, I did attack and rape women. To yes, I enslaved vulnerable women to make them have sex with paying patrons, and if they didn't cooperate, I would beat up, cut, burn, or kill them. And we could be doing these two commissions right now. It would save a lot of precious time. It's the perfect moment, culturally speaking. You white people and men might find yourself in the midst of testing the waters as I speak, because you have people in your lives that would appreciate it. Likewise with you able bodies and cishets. You know, culturally speaking, it would be very efficient to get these necessary processes out of the way now so our slate is cleared and our attention is focused when the fossil fuel companies and their enablers in finance and lackeys in government are hauled before such a commission for their crimes against humanity. Yes, we hid that we knew about our industry's everyday operations, destroying species, habitats, the biosphere, transforming the climate system, desertifying farmlands in precarious communities, putting poor people most at risk of having to abandon their homes and become climate refugees, drowning the world, causing food and water shortages. Yes, we knew about all of that because we dominated the wealth and capital of the planet, so we had plenty of scientists on our payroll. And when the scientists gave us their reports, we shoved those reports in our butts and sat on them and lied about it and lied to start wars and funded think tanks and facade organizations to deny the climate catastrophe we were causing. We upended the truth and reality for our enrichment and lied and lied and lied and deprived everyone of their rights to live in a world that could sustain them and provide a place to pursue happiness. Remember, participating in the truth and reconciliation process is supposed to be the alternative to being dismembered by the angry majority. But the truth is, I can't reconcile how we're going to reconcile the fact that we're supposed to believe these inveterate pathological liars are telling the truth. How do we reconcile their pattern of untruthfulness with their promise to suddenly change that pattern? Is our only choice to meet them with machetes on the barren plains where our civilization is crumbling and take it out of their hides? Fascists thrive on lies. Tyrannies lie as a matter of business as usual. Lies are the rebar of nationalism. Lying about internal threats to the fatherland and the plague of barbaric peoples polluting our culture with their tiger passions and dark sorcery. In this case, lies that there was no threat to the continued existence of humanity. They've known about the threat as long as any scientist has, but lied and acted as if they believed their own lies. True, the falseness of the lie will have become self-evident. If it hasn't already, there won't be a reason to continue lying, and any deployment of any promised plan to repair the destruction will be measurable, and it will be paid for out of the fortunes of the criminals. And yes, if they don't comply, they'll be Danny Trejo'd by the people, but far better for us all for them to comply as soon as possible. We need to start putting this commission together now. Maybe we should start by formally drawing up a list of charges. We of the citizenry need to draw up a list of charges like that Greta Thunberg has, but with as much diverse input as the population is affected, which is everyone, so we don't miss anything, and a list of remedies we seek, and build our commission around that. We need to start the process and invite the criminals to either participate in good faith or suffer the consequences. I mean, there's the carrot. We can save the world and create a sustainable civilization and farming system and a custodial system to protect, to protect the still wild or newly wild places. Or there's the stick. We can chop them up and feed them to the hungry dogs of the world. Build it and they will come. Or else. 
This has been a moment of truth. Yeah. Good day. I really do wish that was the line in Field of Dreams. Build it and they will come or else. And then just like the end of the movie would be that long line of cars lining up to go to the uh, Field of Dreams. And it's just surrounded by tanks and soldiers forcing them to go. I think that yeah. Would be a much better ending. They're kind of there in a way. You know? It's pretty close. It's pretty close. God, I hate that movie. I really oh. dislike that movie. You know, it's funny. Uh, somebody I know, a friend of mine, read the book. Shoeless Joe, right? That it was based on, and told me the whole plot of it before even the movie was even made. Before I even knew that there was going to be a movie, and uh, I could tell that the movie was going to be a cloying disappointment. <laughs> and I got to say that Ray Liotta, he's a scary guy, man. I, even when he, even when he's happy and laughing, he looks like he's going to murder you. I know he does. I'm. Always, I was waiting for Shoeless Joe just to have this mass murder out in the cornfield. I didn't know what the hell was going on there. And by the way, I know a million yeah. other people have said it. Nobody has ever had a catch in their life. They play yeah. catch. Yeah. They play catch. Yeah. And yeah. it's not yeah. a regional yeah. thing. It's just that Ray Kinsella, not a very good writer. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Not everyone can do it. You know, push push the keys down with their fingers. It's art. <laughs> it's an art. All right, Jeffy, until next week. All right. Stay beautiful. Used to. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, Ooh. This Is Hell. We want to thank the people who supported This Is Hell this week at thisishell.com when they clicked on support. First, thanks to Daniel P. for a religious-like tithing commitment to This Is Hell. Special thanks to Rowan, who wanted some of our swag and was uh, kind enough to donate extra to cover shipping all the way to New Zealand. Sometimes I think we have more listeners in Oceania than we do in Chicago. Thanks, Roan. You, too, can support This Is Hell and get a gift by donating at thisishell.com and then selecting from our variety of merch, including trucker hats, T-shirts, campfire, coffee mugs, reusable shopping bags, as well as our flash drive containing 21st or 25 interviews that's called the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century. Okay, let's read the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell, which is, why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? Why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com. Slash This Is Hell Radio. All replies right on air right now. This week's winner gets a book we featured on this morning's show. Jody Dean's Comrade, an essay on political belonging. Alex, you have all the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell. So let's hear them. Uh, why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? Christine M. says, because she's a woman, I'm a woman, and her capitalist bones shouldn't mean anything when it comes to electing her. <laughs> Never mind this democratic socialism stuff from that old guy who was daring to run against her. <laughs> Jason L. says, communicative capitalists made me do it. Jody Dean fan there. Uh, Chris C. says, 2016 was so much fun, I want to do it again. (laughs) Wait a second, Chris who? Uh, That's Chris C. Okay. Uh, Twin Ports Democratic Socialists of America said, because she she booed so loudly and high-fived Bernie when Trump said, we will never be a socialist country. (laughs) Uh, Kevin W. said, because her stash is the dankest. She's a stone cold player and never lets on. Uh, nothing about nothing about Elizabeth Warren is dank Not at all. Uh, MGB says because I want to support a woman of color. <laughs> uh, Garrett L says I have no idea. Isa, Isa M says because she did the centrist night of the long knives when it came when it became clear Bernie was going to win the nomination. Of course, I support Warren. I always supported Warren and the DNC. Uh, Joshua L says I got stock in twenty three and Me. 
Uh, <laughs> why did you ju- Why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? Uh, Who was that? Twenty three me. Uh, Joshua L. Okay. Shane M says I'm a very timid fellow. My nerves are shot. I can't stand bright colors or loud noises. Excitement might kill me. I need my calmatives. Oh no, where are my calmatives? I must go now, but not too swiftly. Speed might kill me. Incrementalism is my only hope. <laughs> Who was that? That was Shane M. That was great, Shane. Uh, Fritz K says plagiarist, hypocrite, panderer, opportunist. Uh, it's my business what? card. <laughs> Is that why he endorsed her? That's really that's weird. Pretty cool, actually. Uh, just it's the most honest reason to support her I've seen. Justin H says because she's well educated and pragmatic, like my friends at wine tasting and book club events. <laughs> Bernie yells too much and scares me. What is he so angry about, anyways? Uh, Benjamin C says white privilege. Theo S says I really like her daughter's money. Ronaldo M sent us a link. Hold on, let me open this. I hope it's not a link to pasta fajoule. <laughs> uh, no. Um, it's a link to Inquisitor say from headline saying Elizabeth Warren's endorsement from WFP reportedly came following demos donation expectations expectations of more money. Wow, really? Wow. Goddamn uh, demos. They do such good work and then they pull this kind of crap. Muriel C says I'm an upper middle class college educated white collar worker. Abstractly, I'm concerned about inequality, but practically, I'm worried about my relative prestige being diminished if any real economic and social change occurs. As a woman of color Harvard professor, Warren checks all the boxes of diversity, merit, and wonkishness that I purport to value, even though I'm just as much, if not more, a low-information voter than the conservative rubes in the rural South whom I despise. Great answer. Dan L. says, I like licking the DNC's boots, but I want to be discreet about it. (laughs) Uh, Borky B. says, because I'm a useful idiot. Scott M. says, Red Fox used to endorse her when cardiac stress set in. It's good enough for me. <laughs> Did not think we'd one. be getting yeah, Elizabeth. Uh, uh, Michael C. says, we've, uh, they've got a plan to put three rounds in the back of the skull to anyone who doesn't. Uh, Stephanie M. says, hella drunk at champagne brunch right now. I did what? Now that's a good answer. Uh why did you endorse Elizabeth Warren? MTB says, because I'm really tired of Trump waking everyone up. People protesting and demanding stuff. Remember the good old days when Obama convinced everyone to put down the pitchforks and just hope for the best. As the great one said, what happened? Uh, a couple more. Warren L says, she understands who the financial bad guys are. She understands the need for heavy regulation of the financial casinos. I think she gets the need for a green revolution too. If she paid for it all with a tax on the financial derivatives, I could be ecstatic. Well, it's not very funny, Warren. No, it wasn't funny at all. <laughs> uh, uh, Sarah S. says, uh, my working family needs that cash her daughter gave us. Aaron B. What says, is with her daughter? I'm, I'm clueless about oh, this. Oh, uh, her daughter uh, somehow is involved in $50,000 going uh, to from somewhere to the working family. Uh, family's uh, party. Yeah, yeah. So, some, so there's a $50,000. Who the hell cares somewhere. about the working family's party's endorsement anyway, man? I just uh, don't get it. Uh, Aaron B. says, for a copy of Jody Dean's new book, Comrade. <laughs> Uh, Aaron B. says, I demand to know your source. My debt collectors told you, didn't they? Uh, Leslie P. says, Dems have a death wish. Braden S. says, I heard she'd beat Nancy Pelosi at Jenga six times in a row. And finally, uh, Wally with something that I'm not going to read the acronym of on the radio. (laughs) All right, then. Well, that seems fair enough. My response to this week's question from hell, why did you just endorse Elizabeth Warren? I don't know. I was drunk, I guess. Maybe, probably high. Um, The sun was in my eyes. My vision's not that great, and I thought she was Bernie. Look, it was a simple mistake. Can I take it back? Wait, no backsies? Oh, man, I forgot this isn't a democracy. That makes this week's winner get is, let's see, Jessica said it was in her plan. Chris C. said 2016 was so much fun. 
Garrett L. saying, I have no idea why I endorsed Elizabeth Warren. Joshua L. because he wants to invest in, or he's invested in 23andMe, which is just mean. Shane M.'s response on how he needed a calmative, though. I can't write, couldn't write down the entire response here. That was spectacular. And even though Shane has won several times in the past, Dude, your response this week was absolutely spectacular. So you are the winner of Jody Dean's book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging. Message us via Facebook and with your mailing address, and we will mail it to you ASAP. In case you missed it, this week's Hangar of Cure was weed, but specific types of weed. So you'll have to go back and listen to Monday's show to find out which ones. You can find it at thisishell.com. Thanks to Alex, Jerry, and Jonah Tomko-Smith for producing this week's Hell. We also appreciate each and every one of this week's guests. But I just want to say something about this week's show that I realized right before we went on air or streaming. On this week's This Is Hell, we were considering the U.S. relationship with the world when we talked to Kevin Cashman, the Center for Economic Policy and Research, CEPR.net, about U.S. sanctions against Iran. And then we got to rethinking our political relationships with other people when we spoke with Jody Dean, author of Comrade. And then during our interview today, we were discussing reexamining our relationship with other living things, with all other living things, when we spoke to Amelia Moore. So it's no big deal. We just wanted you to reconsider the U.S. relationship with the world. We wanted you to rethink your own political relation with other people. And we want you to reexamine all your relationships with all living things. No big deal. It was a pretty easy week for everybody included, right? This is not the media. This is hell. Hey, Alex, what the hell is going on on next week's show? Uh, next weekend, this is uh, we're doing two shows, uh, two one-hour shows. Uh, the first one is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. We're talking with Benjamin Wargraft about his book Meat Planet: Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food. That's Tuesday at what? Uh, it's Tuesday at two. All right. Uh, 2:15 actually. I guess it's going to start. But two, the show starts at two uh, next Tuesday. Also, Adam Kotzko will be back on. I'm really, really excited about this. He's one of my favorite guests from last year when he had the book uh, Neoliberalism's Demons, and now he has an N plus one piece called The Evangelical Mind. Uh, about the sort of politics and psychology of evangelicals in a uh, 21st century America. It's, yeah, and he's a big listener of This Is Hell, which is great. Yeah, I'm real excited about that one. And also, Andrew Kennis will be on to talk about his alternate piece, How El Paso Became a Natural Target for a Brutal Act of White Supremacy. So that's terror. two hours on Tuesday? Yes. At 2 o'clock? Yes. And then when's the next show? Uh, Friday. Friday at Friday. 2. Friday. No, uh, that's uh, Friday at 10. Friday at 10. Yes. Okay. And uh, who are our guests on Friday? Still working on that one. Okay. But it's a two-hour show again on Friday or yes, one? Yes. Two. Excellent. All right. See, you, want to do, you want to do one? No, no. Right, I, I want, I, I'm fine either way. No, no. I want to do two. Uh, that's fine. I just uh, wanted to make sure that I had the schedule right, and I figured I'd use this time to do it. All right. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz. I want to thank everybody who was involved in this week's show. Alex, Jonah, I want to thank uh, Amelia today, Jody from earlier today, Kevin from earlier this week. Uh, I guess that's about it, right? Yeah, I want to go downstairs and drink. I already got a beer, but I've only been able to take a couple of sips. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Matt Damon. No. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor.
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 